Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Michinori Shimoji. Michinori Shimoji is an associate professor of linguistics at Kyushu University in Japan. He is the author of A Grammar of Irabu, a Southern Ryukyuan language, and he is also the editor of the Handbook of Ryukyuan Languages along with Patrick Heinrich and Shin Shou Miyata. He is also the editor of An Introduction to Ryukyuan Languages, along with Thomas Pellard. His research is centered on fieldwork-based descriptions of Ryukyuan languages, empirical and inductive generalizations of linguistic systems and structure, with a particular emphasis on typological generalizations. So this episode was really exciting for me to record. Michinori Shimoji is someone who is kind of a hero of mine from when I started just thinking about studying Ryukyuan languages. He was actually one of the first or maybe even the first linguist to treat Ryukyuan languages as independent languages rather than dialects of Japanese. And yeah, and he's just someone who I've really admired for a long time. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Something that he said, uh, which I haven't heard from other guests on the podcast, is that he considers himself a semi-insider. So uh, insider researcher is a term that I learned from Kairu Nisa in episode five, and it means a linguist who is working within their own community. And of course, this is a fluid concept, positionality, changes and ebbs and flows. Um, but for Michinori Shimoji, he said he considers himself a semi-insider because he works with the community of his father, so where his father grew up, and it's his father's side of the family, uh, their community. So uh, he did not actually grow up in Irabu, but but he still has that connection to that to that language and to that culture. Um, so yeah, so I'm really excited to share this episode with everyone, um, and I hope that. Ryukyunists and Shimanchu people will will enjoy this episode as much as I did. Thank you so much, Michinori-san, for coming on to Field Notes. I really appreciate you sharing your time with us. Yeah, and th- yeah, thank you very much uh, for having me as a guest. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, to start, can you share with us how you first became a linguist? Um, okay. Uh, I first specialized in anthropology uh, when I was an undergraduate student. Um, I chose the, this field of research because I had a strong interest in humans and their unique cultures. And I also like to ask uh, why they are so different when they are genetically the same. This way I started to study anthropology and uh, students of anthropology usually learn basics of linguistic analysis uh, because language is the first obstacle for um, any field workers, you know. And uh, the basic knowledge of linguistics can help field workers understand the language of the field place and describe their oral cultures like rituals, songs, 
material names and so on in a precise way. Um, it was funny how I was particularly fascinated by uh, linguistics rather than the main research area, I mean, anthropology. To me, linguistics was like solving a complicated puzzle created by generations of the language community. And I started to believe that um, studying the complex language system per se is one good way to understand human culture, as language is the most sophisticated non-material culture. So that was when you were doing your undergraduate degree in Japan, right? So you weren't working on Irabu at that time? Um, uh, no, uh, I first studied Palawan, an Austronesian language, um, as I had interest in cultures and languages of the Pacific. Um, Palawan was relatively a well-studied language, and uh, for an MA student like me, it was easier to start with this kind of language than dealing with a language which has uh, never been described before, you know. But at the same time, I had to choose a very specific topic to make my study meaningful because there's a lot of literature on it. Uh, it was like picking out one specific topic out of the complex language system in an isolated manner. It wasn't uh, what I really wanted to do. I wanted to deal with the entire system of a language uh, from the scratch. Uh, this is why I decided to choose a language which has never been described or little described before and to describe the complex language system as a whole uh, in, in, in the form of uh, descriptive grammar. Naturally, uh, I started reading descriptive grammars of lesser-known languages um, all over the world, especially endangered languages. And uh, Bob Dixon who is the greatest contemporary linguist and uh, grammar writer, in my personal opinion, uh, was my hero. And uh, he, I knew that he used to teach at Australian National University. And Australian National University was and still is one of the best institutions to study ways to write descriptive grammars of lesser-known languages. So I decided to go to ANU as a PhD student. And later on, I finally decided to take up Ryukyuan to describe, you know, for, for, for my PhD um, thesis, uh, because nobody had ever described it in the form of a descriptive grammar at the time. As you know, it is very, it is now very common that Ryukyuan is treated as a group of different languages and there are a dozen of grammars published. But when I started to study Ryukyuan back in 2005, Ryukyuan was mostly studied just as dialects of Japanese and everybody was keen on comparing specific issues like verb conjugation, accent, and so on uh, with those of Japanese. Ryukyuan was not regarded as independent languages by researchers, and so I decided to be the first linguist who regards Ryukyuan as independent languages and write a descriptive grammar of it. And I actually became one. Um, another important um, fact behind my decision to study Ryukyuan uh, was that my subject language, Irabu Ryukyuan, was my, was my father's native language, and Irabu Ryukyuan was one of the endangered uh, languages spoken in the Ryukyus. 
Uh, all Rukian languages are endangered, but Irabrukian was uh, relatively, you know, highly endangered uh, language. So I decided to take up that language uh, for a description. I've heard you describe yourself as a semi-insider researcher. Can you talk more about that and what you mean by that? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I call myself a semi-insider uh, because uh, Irabu is not my not my mother tongue, uh, but my father's native language. And I grew up in Okinawa, not Miyako, and my dad and mom spoke two different languages in in in, in my family because Irabu and Okinawan are two different languages. They are quite distinct from each other. Uh, they naturally talked with each other in standard Japanese rather than their na- native languages, which is why I failed to acquire either language, Irabu no Okinawan. So I grew up in Okinawa with just with standard language or a, an aerial version of standard language. So I, I, I cannot, you know, call myself an insider, but you know, Culturally, I, I think, you know, part of my identity is, belongs to Miyako. So I, I would call myself a semi-insider. Do you think that your role as a semi-insider versus someone like me who's an outsider, um, can you talk about how that experience of doing research is different from someone like me or someone like, like someone who is doing research on their, in their own community that they grew up in? Yeah, one of the challenges uh, I had was uh, I, I wasn't able to look at the language uh, quite objectively uh, as a researcher uh, because uh, I f- the first thing I wanted to do was to acquire that language rather than to study that language. I, I had a very strong um, motivation for uh, acquiring that language because it's my father's language and I, I always wanted to acquire that language after I, you know, after I knew that, uh, the language is in danger and, uh, you know, so the, the motivation was that, uh, in, in the future, I would be, uh, semi-native speaker of the language. So yeah, that was a challenge for me. The process of describing the Arab language was like a reversing language shift. Mm. Yeah, it was more like learning to speak my father's native language than just studying the target language objectively. So for, for an outsider researcher who is purely uh, interested in describing the language, um, the field work was like uh, a scientific process. But for me, you know, it was very personal. At the first period of my field work, uh, I wasn't focused on describing the language at all. I was just, I, I wanted to get involved in that community and uh, I, I wanted to learn the language from the native speakers. So I, I didn't do any, you know, scientific research uh, in, in the first period of field work. I'm not sure whether that approach was uh, best for scientists, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to speak that language first before I, before I, be, you know, become a, a field researcher. So uh, it was a big challenge. Yeah, yeah. I think that people might argue that taking that initial time though to learn the language sufficiently 
would make the scientific research so much better later in the, in the long run. Can you tell us more about the language context of Irabu, Miyako? Ah, okay. Um, Irabu is spoken on Irabu Island, which uh, lies near Miyako Island. The Miyako Island is the center of the Miyakojima city, officially, and there are about 5,000 5,000 or 6,000 people living in the Iraba Island and uh, 40,000 in Miyako Island. So there's a big difference uh, between the two, uh, the size between the two islands. And uh, yeah, there are 5,000 people uh, in Irabu, but the number of native speakers is much less than that number. Uh, as all the speakers are elders, uh, maybe over 65 or 70 years old, and younger generations do not speak the Ilab language anymore. So it, it is a typical endangered language. And I, I, estimate, I estimated uh, the, the number of native speakers uh, in my PhD thesis as 2,000 or less than that number. And this language will might might die out in 20 years or so if there's no uh, reverse language shift or something. And recently, Iraba Island and Miyako Island have been connected by a very long bridge, uh, three kilometers long. And it certainly will affect the, the demographic situation of Iraba Island. Uh, for example, on, as, as the, as the, Irabu, the land in Iraba is still much cheaper than uh, Miyakojima city, uh, city center, people living in Miyako main, mainland may decide to live in Iraq, uh, which will mean much for language inheritance and the, the chance for the language to survive. Yeah, there will be a much uh, demographic change uh, in the near future in Iraq island. Is the variety spoken on Miyakojima uh, is there a high level of mutual intelligibility with Irabu or not so much? Irabu people can uh, understand Miyako language, but uh, the Miyako people uh, would not be able to sp- speak or hear the Irabu language because Miyako language is like a de facto standard language in the Miyakojima city. Hmm. So Irabu people can, you know, they, they are familiar with uh, Miyako language in some way. Yeah, that's interesting. Is it different across like all areas, like lexicon, phonology, intonation, or is there one specific thing that is more distinct between Irabu and Miyako? Yeah, phonology is quite uh, similar, but the, the grammar and uh, grammar is different, and uh, the lexicon is also slightly different. And uh, the local people within Iraba Island, there's a slight difference between each, how can I say, regions. There are four uh, regional dialects spoken on Iraba Island. And uh, yeah, each of them have slightly different mm. dialect of variation. That's really interesting. I think you spoke a little bit about your main research interests of Descriptive linguistics. Yeah. Um, do you want to speak more about that? Uh, okay. Um, yeah. As I mentioned, you know, my interest uh, lies in describing that the, the whole system of language. Uh, the whole system means, uh, you know, from sound to grammar, 
from sound to discourse organization, you know, in, in the form of a descriptive grammar. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in, you know, taking up uh, different topics and discussing them in an in, in isolated manner because they are all connected as a system. So, yeah, my goal is you, is to describe, you know, this complex system as a whole. I, I want to deal with uh, language rather than the construction of a language. Yeah, so this is my interest. Mm. Um, in your opinion, do you think that there is space for or there is a place for outsider researchers in the Ryukyus? Mm. And if so, is there something that you've noticed that outsiders often get wrong when they're working in the Ryukyuan context? Oh, okay. As for the first question, yeah, I, I think there are there there is much space for outsiders and uh, outsiders to the research on Ryukyu. C- can I ask ask you back? Uh, wh- wh- why did you decide to ask this question? Uh, do Do you feel something about? Well, oh, so in I work in Amami Oshima in the Seitouchi town, which spans the southern part of Amami Oshima and then three smaller islands south, uh, Kakaroma, uh, Yoro, and Uke, which also make up part of the town. And and so I've worked with this community since 2017. And in in my experience, people have always been very welcoming. And I think I've been very lucky that people have uh, welcomed me and invited me and wanted to work with me. But I think this is not everyone's experience and that some people think that only insiders should do mm. language documentation and that it should be closed to outsiders. Okay. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's not common in Ryukyu uh, for, you know, the the local people to feel that their language is stolen by the researchers, uh, which it probably which is often the case in other lesser-known language communities. I, I, I often have this kind, of, this kind of situation, but I, I don't think it's common in Ryukyu. But sometimes it does happen, especially when outsider researchers just come to the field and do the research and go back to their institutions it, it often happens because you know doing field work is itself it, it, it's itself a very tough task so people want to focus on their research you know rather than uh, uh, making friends with the local people and uh, you know sometimes helping them in the field you know having a personal connections keeping the personal connections they, all these kinds of things are Many people think that it's not part of the linguistic analysis. It's not part of uh, what linguists do. So sometimes people uh, get wrong when they decide to focus on linguistic aspects only. And uh, local people feel that, you know, and as you, as you said earlier, you know, uh, in sometime earlier, um, there is a, you know, research fatigue on the part of the, the local people. So I think outside researchers may get wrong when this kind of thing happens. Yeah, I think 
I think it's actually kind of lazy if researchers don't invest in the local community. If they say like, oh, I'm, I'm only here to do linguistics. I don't have time or I don't have energy to spend time with people and make personal connections. Yeah, I, ca- I can't understand that feeling. And I, I think people who say things like that, they, they're not looking at the community as people. They're just seeing them as, as data. Mm. Maybe they should not do field work. They should do like corpus linguistics or something. Mm-hmm-hmm. And when you go to some, you know, research, uh, meetings um, or, uh, society, theoretical linguists often ask us, why didn't you ask this minimal pass? Why didn't you get this data? But, you know, when we are in the field, it's sometimes very difficult to make our research intention understood by the local people. And uh, we don't want to, you know, you know, um, have a very huge pressure to the local people, you know, to spend much time on thinking about very complex minimal pairs and these kinds of things. Some, in some cases, it's, it's, uh, a very good thing for us to give up at the certain point th- for this time. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, we, we need to divide our labor in separate field trips rather than, you know, focus on one field trip to get all the data. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So this makes, you know, local people feel, you know, tired. Yeah, I get I get really agitated when I think about people who <laughs> who just take people's time and mm. and don't respect don't respect people's time and and mm. oh, it makes me extremely ira ira. Yeah, ira ira. Um yeah, I th- I think also you never know what kind of data you will actually get if you might start mm. the session wanting to answer some specific question mm. but i've had so many recording sessions where i thought the session was kind of going wrong like not going the way i had expected and i wasn't able to answer any of the questions i had but then yeah. in the end those recordings ended up being very valuable for mm. some other reason that i at the time i couldn't anticipate yeah yeah so. yeah unexpected field work yeah <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah definitely mm. okay so this question is from a listener a, a ryukyuan listener and she wrote People from different fields have been working hard to document, describe, and revitalize Ryukyuan languages. Do you have any thoughts on what we can do to respond to the holistic community needs as a next step? Uh, Collaborative research will uh, become vital for uh, Ryukyuan studies in in the future, and probably it's it's now it's occurring in in Ryukyuan studies. But uh, yeah, collaborative research will become vital. Some researchers uh, specializes in description of the language system, like me, and others in historical issues of the language, and still others in social linguistic aspects. And all these kinds of people get together to to do some collaborative research on one island or uh, main islands, and uh, you know this will you know make the Ryukyuan research you know, multi-dimensional and very rich 
in this context, we need to, how can I say, we need to bring the local people into this research trend in a collaborative research. So they can, you know, they can give us feedback to our research and they can give us feedback. Uh, they can give us an opinion from the local people, what they want us to do. And in, in the documentation process, you know, uh, it's necessary for us to set up some uh, orthography, for example. So in, in this kind of process, the local people's opinion is very important. So I think collaborative research is one key notion in the future of European researchers. And uh, as for revitalizing things, to be honest, I, I'm not quite sure whether the idea of language revitalization is realistic in the Ryukyu context. I think documentation and teaching the community their heritage language is very important in some respects, but w when we talk about language revitalization, sometimes it's it's not a easy step to take. I, I don't know whether revitalizing a language for the community has much impact on their successful future. Uh, the problem doesn't lie in the fact that they cannot speak the local language, but in the fact that the contemporary world goes without considering minority people. So the language loss is a result of this general problem. And this problem, and this general problem, the problem that the contemporary world goes without considering minorities, is only solved by questioning and changing the current socio-economic system. So Ryukyuan people, especially um, Okinawan people, still you know, suffer from discrimination in in such a way that Japanese government sacrifice Okinawan people to keep the US marine bases for the defense policy of Japan and Japanese people are silent to this situation and Okinawan people think that it's it's a very typical situation of discrimination so th this kind of general problem should be solved first but people are not so much interested in revitalizing the language in this context. Even if Okinawan people had succeeded in preserving their own language, the situation that the current situation that, you know, they are discriminated uh, would have been the same or even worse. And as Japanese people tend to misunderstand that, uh, you know, that those speaking a different language is foreign people. And it is true that revitalizing Okinawa might might be effective in uniting their identity again against Japanese in this situation. But in such a case, probably Shuri Okinawa, which is the the capital language, which is the language uh, used to be spoken in the capital of uh, Ryukyuan Dynasty, would be chosen as a language to revitalize. And uh, historically, that language was a killer language for other minority languages in Okinawa. So this way, uh, revitalizing the local language will lead to killing minority local languages, uh, which would be, you know, simply an irony, right? So the language revitalization thing is a very difficult topic for me, and I keep myself uh, a little bit away from this topic and uh, I focused on working on a description and documentation uh, of as many Rican languages as possible. Uh, 
uh, I'm not sure yeah, whether I can answer the, the listener's question, but uh, yeah, this is my opinion about liberalization. Yeah, I think that that issue you, you mentioned of potentially standardizing and deciding, okay, the language that is going to be the focus of revitalization would be Shuri Ryukyuan, but then where would that leave? I mean, like Yayama or Yonaguni or, or Amami are very far from Okinawa. So I, I don't think people in Amami are going to start speaking <laughs> Shuri. There's, it, there's just mm, no way. It's no, not no way. realistic. And there's a political problem. Amami is spoken in the, the Kagoshima prefecture. Yeah, Kagoshima prefecture. Yeah. And uh, other Ryukyuan languages are spoken in Okinawa prefecture. So there's a prefecture border and language policy always, you know, go with a political border. So a prefectural, you know, division affects this. Like ideological border. Yeah, ideological border. Yeah, I, I think it is true that because Amami is part of Kagoshima, I feel it often gets a little bit left out with Ryukyuan studies because it's so, it's not part of the same prefecture. So yeah, it's difficult. Mm. What advice would you give to someone who wants to do field work in the Ryukyus? Uh, okay. Uh, my advice is a, a practical advice and it can be applied to any field situations, but it's definitely helpful for those who, you know, conduct field work in Ryukyus. If you want to conduct field work, uh, especially for writing a PhD thesis, please uh, divide your whole project into three parts. Uh, the first one should be a short field trip uh, for one month or so, and the second one should be very long, six months to a year, and the third one should be, again, shorter, uh, one or two months. In, in the first field work, please... Don't think it's a field work. Please uh, don't be keen on collecting data or testing your hypothesis. Uh, rather, you need to make friends uh, with uh, local people and learn to speak the language uh, as a learner rather than a researcher of the language. And don't treat them as informants at this stage uh, or at any later stage. Uh, this way, you know, you can make yourself understood by the local people and you can make uh, personal connections with the local community, then you can start the, the linguistic analysis in the second field work. In the second field work, you start being a linguist, uh, collect the data and uh, analyze it. And the field work should be long enough so that you can analyze that on site rather than doing so after going back to your institution. If the field trip is very short, you have to focus on collecting the data and you cannot spend much time on analysis. But it is analysis that makes you your next data collection meaningful, right? Mm -hmm. So the two steps, two steps means collecting the data and analyzing it. Uh, these steps should go hand in hand. It, it always happened in the same time. That's why I advise you, you should spend at least six months in the field. Uh, it's, it's very enough time for doing so. And there should be a reasonable interval between the second field trip and the third one. Like one year or six months, I think. You write up a draft of your thesis in, in your institution. 
and have a feedback to it and know what kind of data is lacking and, and not what kind of data is necessary for sharpening your argument, then you can prepare for the third field trip. And the third one should be, of course, shorter than the second one because the, the, the purpose of this the field trip is just to fill the gaps. So this way you can uh, make your whole project work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think the biggest obstacle is just getting the funding to do enough trips to actually get the, like, to do the ideal amount of data collection. Because I do agree that every time you go, it goes better, it goes more smoothly, you know what to expect, and you have more contacts. Well, Thank you, Michinori-san. This was really, really interesting. And it was kind of a thrill for me because we work in the same area. So thank you. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, having me as guest this for, in this wonderful program. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, yeah, it, it, it was a very good promotion for Ryukyuan studies. Yeah, I hope so. Mm. I hope so. Yeah, I hope many young us you know, generations, you know, will find Rican studies interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Where can people learn more about your work and what you're doing? Uh, there's a my personal website. So can you share my a URL? Yes. Yeah, with, with the listener. Yeah, I will link it. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's in Japanese, but uh, you can listen to the sound of IRWQ1 a little bit. Great, and I'll, I'll, I'll link those specific links too so that people can find them easily if they maybe don't speak Japanese or don't read Japanese, but they want to hear what Irabu sounds like. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Tsukaresama. Tsukaresama this. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.